Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I am Kyle Bird, and as always, I have my my co-host, Matt. Matt Parmley. Yes. Hey, how are you? Thank you for introducing yourself, Matthew. <laughs> um, how are you? Good, man. Excited for tonight, actually. Yeah, and uh, this is a, a prelude to Godzilla vs. Kong, which came out internationally today, and for... Uh, the United States will be dropping theatrically and on HBO Max next Wednesday. Um, and this is something that, uh, I mean, with all the delays that Godzilla vs. Kong has had, I mean, we, we probably first brought up the idea of doing this, like, ten years ago or, <laughs> or something. <Yeah. laughs> but, um... But we're finally doing it, uh, a commentary for King Kong vs. Godzilla, because this movie uh, was historic uh, for many reasons, uh, for probably both good and bad reasons, and um, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of history behind this movie, and uh, to help us, we enlisted two of our, our good friends that are no strangers to uh, regular listeners. Um, we have uh, with us... Uh, prolific uh author mr john lemay how you doing john hey guys i'm doing good i i did want to ask like is this gonna be one of those commentaries where we just arbitrarily describe what's happening on, <laughs> on the screen yeah or so we, okay yeah we're, we're trying something different um we didn't prepare any notes um okay yeah if, if anyone here has ever listened to the director william friedkin uh do a commentary on one of his movies this is going to be the same kind of thing where we just kind of narrate what's happening um so uh you know we we thought uh yeah you know there's no like uh, uh, version of this movie that's friendly to to blind people so so maybe we can we can do that um and uh also with us uh, along for the ride is uh our good buddy tom welcome welcome back how are you i'm great i'd be better if i got to see a certain movie tonight but you know um (laughs) but but Godzilla fans could not behave as well as a bunch of rowdy Snyder bro incels who cried that their superhero movie wasn't dark and edgy enough. That's that's this fandom could not be as well behaved as those people. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but uh I, let, I want to take a minute to, to catch up with John real quick, because it's been way too long since we've had you on, and you've done an a, incredible amount of things <laughs> since the last time we had you on. I mean, you you uh, wrote... Has published about 53 books. Yes. At least. Um, yeah. <laughs> half that. That's half that, but, you know. Um, 26. We 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 got uh, Jaws Unmade, um, which is an excellent book all about unmade Jaws movies, and also a chronicle of Jaws ripoff movies, which, from what I understand, has been a, a great success for you. Also, so not only is it a great book, but congratulations. Um, writing uh, Japanese monsters, 
which uh, <clears throat> we'll have another edit uh, out at some point. And also, most recently, uh, the enormous, enormous, enormous uh, editing Japanese monsters, Volume 1, the U.S. edits, which is 538 pages of all of the differences between the original versions of tokusatsu films and the American versions. Um, if people remember the old Godzilla in America articles from G-Fan and the uh, uh, Toho in America articles from Kaiju Fan, from Robert Biondi, I mean, this is basically the same idea, only it's crammed into this enormous volume. I'm holding it right now. I could probably knock someone out with it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this... I mean, this had to have Could been you incredible. Kill someone with it, like John Wick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this is <laughs> the kind of thing John Wick would use to like cave someone's head in. Um, yeah, I I can't imagine how how long did it take you to put this together. Uh, it seems like I started that book after my first G Fest. I feel like like I think so, like two years thereabouts. <laughs> Yeah, no, that it's, it's maybe three years. It's I don't insane, know. Um, but yeah, I mean, and it's really more of I think you've even said this yourself. It, it's not so much something you would read from cover to cover as much as it's a reference book, you know, where yeah. you dig it out when you want to know about a certain film. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, I'm sure we'll be referencing some of the information in this book tonight, um, and also. Um, the other big reason we have you on here is because, unfortunately, <laughs> this movie came about because of a series of canceled projects, um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's all, also always been a lot of attempts to reunite Godzilla and Kong, and, um, you know, you're gonna give us the rundown, because when, when you need information about stuff that didn't happen... Um, John LeMay is your man. Um, also, God, see, I, this whole intro is going to be like nine hours of me just ta try, letting you plug your, your, your <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Starting to feel guilty now. Yes, you also, you have two magazines available also. Um, you have the Lost Films fanzine. Which has been around for God, uh, probably almost a year now, isn't that crazy? Yeah, exactly a year. Now. Yeah, <laughs> um, which is the same idea as the books. If anyone's familiar with your books, and um, it's the same idea, only it's not bound by a certain genre or a certain um, franchise. Uh, it's all kinds of unmade movies and things about them. Um, I wrote an article about. The a lot of the the misconceptions and rumors and myths about the King Kong Spider Pit sequence, including the uh, the not so likely usage of puppets from that film in the Black Scorpion. Um, our good buddy Trev, who you hear on the podcast a lot, he has an article in your newest issue about Superman. Is it Superman Reborn? Yeah, super. Not not the weird one where Superman gets Lois pregnant. And then she has the Superman baby, but it's a different one. Lesser known one. Yeah. More family friendly. <laughs> um, 
so so Trev's got an article in in there too, and uh, um, that just came out, right? So people can go yeah, on Amazon release. All right, so all the diehard Trev heads <laughs> can can get their fix, <laughs> and and then also you have another magazine, Jesus Christ, uh, Movie Milestones. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spinoff, yeah. Yeah, well, you got to remember, I was really bored all last year in the lockdown, and I was, just had nothing else to do. Yeah, so, very so, much. This period. is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, in movie milestones, is what you 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 uh, um, pick a, a film it, or a, a couple of related films and do a big long history of them, right? Like, yeah, but the history kind of emphasizes the paths not taken, like deleted scenes, alternate concepts, unmade sequels, stuff like that. So and uh yeah, that so all this stuff uh you can find on Amazon um and uh I mean this man puts pretty much everybody else any other researcher <laughs> in this fandom uh, to shame? I, 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 it, it's the amount of work that you put out on like a daily basis is out of control. Um, Clearly, I have no life. So, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, Unfortunately, we 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 did make the decision to watch the American version because, sadly, the Japanese version is still not as um, I guess readily available or um, you know widely available. Yeah, it's yeah, it's available. The only legal way to to get it in the U.S. is if you get the Criterion. Um, Godzilla box set, uh, but um, you know if you don't have that box set, I mean, you, you unless you own a bootleg, um, if you own the movie and you live in the United States, you chances are you own the American version. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there, it's readily available on on uh, on like a cheap you know disc. Like you can get it for like under ten bucks. Um, and also, I think uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I don't, I don't know. If, like, I think it's on like HBO Max right now or something. Um, um, no, I, might I be think wrong I think HBO, HBO Max has everything but this because it's a universal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was on Amazon Prime not too not too far long ago far long ago not too long ago um so it might even be streaming somewhere yeah yeah the peacock if you have that yeah oh yeah yeah that's universal streaming service so you know uh <clears throat> so yes uh we are are gonna be looking at the uh inferior version of the movie but that's also not a bad thing because i think um with the history behind this movie there's a lot to talk about and why this version is the way it is and um uh just the 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 context in in which this the the crazy story of of this how this movie got made is is pretty relevant (laughs) to the american version as well um so 
if I can figure out what I did with my uh, Blu-ray remote, this is great podcasting, I know. <laughs> Very on brand. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> okay. Um, so if you have the Criterion box set, um, we have uh, the movie synced up at 12 seconds right before the Universal uh, International logo pops up, and um, that's the version Matt and I have loaded. Uh, Tom and John are on the Universal disc, where um, they are paused at two seconds in, so go ahead and cue that up, uh, people, you know, Pause us, do what you gotta do. Uh, as always, we're not gonna be super duper screen uh, specific, so, um, you know, if you do usually listen to us on a commute to work or whatever, um, you should be able to follow along with ease. Um, so we're all queued up here. Um, you guys ready to smash that play button? Yeah. Okay. Yep. You wanna do one, two, three, go? Sure. Okay. All right. And one, two, three, go. Oh, mine. Okay. Okay. There we go. Um. So the Universal International logo, um, is playing us in right now, and um, <laughs> we get the opening credits. Oh, the first name on here, John Beck. Oh boy, we can talk about him. Um, he is a person, uh, and his name is in these credits. You know, some names that are not in these credits? Um, <laughs> we are going to get to that. Um, so, uh, yes, this movie was made in uh, 1962, and it was released as the 30th anniversary movie for Toho Studios. Um, so this, this was a big deal. Um, and this was the first time a Godzilla movie and a Kong movie was in color. Um, this was the first Godzilla movie written by Shinichi Sekizawa, um, who'd previously written Varan and Mothra. Uh, this script really kind of set the standard formula for not just the Godzilla series, but kaiju movies in general. You know, the this movie's structure was mimicked um, by Kaneko for Gamera Guardian of the Universe, just because it's that uh, well done. Um, some other first uh, um, names on the Godzilla film, uh, Koichi Kawakita. Um, this is his first Godzilla movie as assistant special effects cinematographer, um, oh wow, we have some really grainy stock footage here. Um, and uh, yeah, here we have uh, these newsroom sequences that for some reason seem to take place inside a satellite from the Mysterians. <laughs> um, and uh, in my opinion, these just stop the movie anytime they come up. Um, anyway, we'll get into the more of, of this this garbage uh, from the American cut a little bit later. Um, anyway, uh, another name that we see for the first time is uh, Teriyoshi Nakano. Uh, this is his first Godzilla movie. He'd also worked on, you know, Gorath and some some earlier 
Toho Effects Films. Uh, he is the second uh, assistant effects director. Um, Toho bought the rights uh, to use King Kong directly from RKO um, after John Beck put them in contact. Uh, they paid two hundred twenty-two, or I'm sorry, $220,000 um, uh, for the movie rights to Kong for the span of about five years. Um, this was a pretty big amount of money, uh, back then, um, so much that, uh, it, the planned budget for this movie had to be scaled back, uh, which means some of the planned location shooting that they were going to do in Sri Lanka had to be canceled. Um, they were going to film the Faroe Island sequences there, um, but uh, I did mention in the opening credits, um, there are some important names that are not on this film and probably should be. Um, and uh, Matt, I am going to let you talk a little bit about uh, Kong's creator, Marion C. Cooper, and um, just uh, how this movie led to some real, I guess, legal hassles for him that he never lived to, to see resolve. Yeah, so, I mean, Marion C. Cooper had long contested that he actually owned the rights to King Kong, and he always insisted that he sold Kong to RKO for the original film and Son of Kong, and that was where the rights were were supposed to end. Then, of course, he found out that RKO were claiming uh, that the entirety of the rights were for them, and that's where he when he tried to, to make Tarzan versus King Kong at Pioneer Pictures in 1935, and then R- RKO actually interfered. And then he went to work on, uh, he went to work again with RKO in 1949 for Mighty Joe Young, which is an excellent film. And then in 1962, Cooper found out that RKO was actually licensing King Kong through John Beck to Toho. He then sued Beck, Toho, and Universal, which was King Kong versus Godzilla distributor outside of Japan. And then RKO's claim that they owned Kong, um, RKO's claim that they owned Kong was interfered with. And Many powerful players vouched for Cooper's version of the events and that in that he only gave RKO's rights for two films and not the character. But these documents were actually lost when Cooper returned from World War II. And so without them, he actually had no case. We have a couple quotes we're going to share from Cooper. Uh, Quote, my hassle is about King Kong. I created the character long before I came to RKO. And I have always believed that I retained the subsequent picture rights and other rights. I sold RKO the right to make the one original picture, King Kong, and also later, Son of Kong, but that was all. Second quote from Cooper. It seems, it seems my hassle over King Kong is destined to be a, protected, or a protracted one. They'd make me sorry I ever invented the beast if I weren't so fond of him. It makes me feel like Macbeth. Bloody instructions which being taught return to plague the inventor. He actually passed away. Marion C. Cooper passed away in 1973. However, in the aftermath of the 1976 remake dispute between Dilo De Laurentiis and Universal, his son Richard, who was the head of his estate, actually won the rights to the character. And he then sold the rights, except for publishing, to Universal shortly after. <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, uh, just it, it's important to keep in mind that back then. You know, the, there really wasn't a whole lot of IP laws and copyright protection. It really wasn't what it was now. So, you know, a lot of things weren't documented very well. Uh, verbal contracts would, would hold more weight, things like that. 
Um, speaking of uh, people who um, were, I guess, screwed uh, by studios, um, you, we can't talk about this movie without talking about Willis O'Brien, uh, who uh, was the special effects um, uh, guy for the original King Kong and Son of Kong, and he, uh, you know, helped design Kong and animate him, and and you know, much much of Kong in that movie is is very much a performance from Willis O'Brien. Um, he he's done so much with Kong that he he really is the like a co-creator of the character. Um, and unfortunately he's someone that really wasn't appreciated until after he died. Um, and, uh, just to give you a, a brief history of, you know, some of the, the really tragic events, uh, in his life. I mean, this guy had one of the most depressing lives <laughs> in showbiz. I mean, this is a guy that literally pretty much created, uh, modern, you know, special effects film. Uh, everything that we watch now uh, can be traced back to him. Without him, you know, people like A.G. Subaraya and Ray Harryhausen and Peter Jackson, They right now they might be, they, they would probably be plumbers or, you know, uh, working a nine-to-five in an office. Uh, so you can't really, there's no way to overstate his importance. Um, but his life was just, just, spotted with with tragedy and misfortune um i think you know first of all well with son of kong you know he he found that after king kong was a huge hit you know nobody really cared much for his input you know he he automatically dis had disdain for the more comedic treatment of of the monsters um with you know the the son of kong you know miming human behaviors and things like that. Uh, during the making of that movie, uh, his wife, who I believe they were, they were separated from, actually, for a little bit, uh, his wife Hazel shot and killed his two teenage sons. Uh, so she, she murdered their kids, and then she shot herself, uh, which she survived, but she, she passed away because of long-term damage not too long after. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I, anyone, I, I can't imagine anyone going, what it's like to go through that. Um, and yeah, his, his career was really just a series of non-starters. I mean, and, and, uh, some, some projects that he almost had made, War Eagles, um, which he actually started some pre-production, World War II interfered. Um, Guanji, which was later made uh, by Ray Harryhausen in tribute as um, Valley of Guanji. Um, some some movies that he sold uh, ideas for, um, The Vines of uh, Ceres, The Devil's Slide, Below the Bottom. Um, there's uh, unsold uh, story ideas. I mean, he was full of ideas. Um, some titles, Triple Assignment, The Bubbles, Bounty, um, Baboon, A Tale About a Yeti, uh, Umba. Um, John, I'm probably going to at some point have you mention those. Um, and, uh, you know, he had ideas for television, ideas for theme parks. I mean, and just... 
it's one of those guys that was brilliant, but nobody wanted to ever really deal with um, the budget or time that stop motion would take. Um, and so a lot of this stuff never got made, including um, King Kong versus Frankenstein. Um, and the, but and we'll, and John is going to tell us about that in a few minutes, but. Um, some other just things professionally that he was screwed over on. The Beast from Hollow Mountain uh, was a, a film that uh, was a, a dinosaur and cowboy movie, which uh, were his ideas for Guanji. And, you know, the, he sold that idea. They told him he'd be able to animate it. Guess what? They didn't hire him to animate, and the animation looked shitty. Um, the Brave One is another uh, movie that he sold the idea for, never got any credit. Um, the Lost World remake that Irwin Allen had made um, in 1960, uh, they hired O'Brien to do concept art designs, and uh, he was going to do stop-motion effects, and he was let go um, because they said they didn't have the money to do stop-motion, so in that movie, uh, it's one of those things where they glue fake body parts onto lizards to make them look like dinosaurs, and, um, you know, O'Brien's wife, Darlene, always thought that they were never going to have the money for stop motion anyway, and they just hired him for the clout and disposed of him when it was convenient. Um, and so he, he was really hurting for work. In the 50s, he made um, The Black Scorpion, um, and then uh, he also made uh, The Giant Behemoth, and these were work for hire. I mean, and I, I, I do like those movies, but they are kind of junky 50s B-movies, and... You know, there there are things that he did to put food on the table more than, you know, th these were not ideas that originated with him. Um, but to get to how this movie came together, gee, I, I just got to say, this is the first, <laughs> I'm going to interrupt myself, this is the first time I've watched this American version a very long time. It really does just cut the shit out of the story because we're already at Godzilla breaking free yeah. and it's like I've barely touched on <laughs> how, how, how this movie came to be uh, yeah this edit's all fucked up um, anyway uh, so sorry that was just distracting me um, so uh, I am going to have John kind of go into the ideas for King Kong versus Frankenstein in a minute um, but I'm going to kind of jump ahead of that just to talk more about the origin of how it all relates to this movie. So O'Brien had King Kong versus Frankenstein. So O'Brien is another guy who assumes that he retains some kind of ownership over Kong. Um, you know, he ushered the character into life. Um, and King Kong versus Frankenstein was a project he just shopped and shopped and shopped around, couldn't get anyone to, uh, interested uh, and then he met to, uh, with a producer by the name of John Beck. Um, Beck had produced movies like Harvey with James Stewart. Uh, he was a manager at International Pictures. Uh, he actually supervised the merger between Universal and International to create Universal International. Um, he uh, was like, you know what, Obi, I got this. Let me shop this around for you. He meets the folks at Toho, um, and he sells it to them uh, without O'Brien's consent. He never kept O'Brien in the loop on anything. Um, and, uh, you know, Toho would, you know, buy the rights uh, from RKO, and they would say decide to rework it into King Kong versus Godzilla as their big 30th anniversary celebration. Um, 
and uh, Beck would get distribution rights in many major countries, and he would sell it to uh, his old friends at Universal International, uh, who still hold the North American rights to this day. Um, Willis O'Brien find, found out about, the, like, as far as he knew, John Beck was just a guy that said, oh, I'll get back to you, and assumed, you know, hey, he probably couldn't do anything with it, it's dead. Um, he reads about King Kong versus Godzilla in Variety magazine, um, and he considered suing, uh, and just to kind of give you an idea of where, like I said, the man who literally invented multiple you know, genres here, um, was doing in, in, at, at this point in time, um, he realized he really didn't have the money to sue, and if he did, the lawyers would, would, uh, drag the case out, and he would have to keep paying them until he went broke. Um, and, uh, to quote his wife, Darlene, um, O'Brien, uh, Darlene O'Brien, she said, he never learned to protect himself in spite of the fact that he took up boxing. He was <clears throat> always in too much of a financial spot to risk losing a job or hitting back. The monster, and, uh, he, he, boxing was a hobby of his. Um, and she goes on to say, the monsters he conjured up for film were nothing compared to the monsters he encountered in real life. Um... Around that same time, um, he was hired as an animation director on the classic comedy It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, uh, but he wouldn't live much longer. Um, he wouldn't live to see the completion of that film or really get any work done on it. On November 10th, 1962, he died of a heart attack at the age of 76. Um, Darlene O'Brien remembers, he laid down for a while and had milk toast for dinner and left the table and went into the living room to watch television. I was looking at the television when I heard an odd kind of cough from him and looked toward him. He was falling over on his side. He'd evidently died sitting up because when I rushed over to him, his eyes had no expression whatsoever. Um, and O'Brien had already passed, um, by the time an ambulance had arrived uh, sometime later, Darlene talks about what could have caused the heart attack, and this is where we have to kind of come to grips with the grim um, reality behind what this movie really did to, to some of these guys. Um, but uh, she says, I'm positive the tension of being out of work during the last two years and the frustration of the King Kong versus Frankenstein deal had a lot to do with the heart attack that took Obie's life. Um, both Marion C. Cooper and Willis O'Brien considered themselves owners or partial owners of Kong, and in the end, neither of them made any money or got credit on King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, and uh, Toho kept the idea of a giant Frankenstein monster in mind, uh, and he didn't get credit on Frankenstein Conquers the World either, um, which kind of was a holdover from that. Uh, so when you look at the, the reputation that Japanese monster movies have among the stop-motion community and people that, uh, you know, are very into Willis O'Brien, Ray Harryhausen, um, you can kind of understand where some of that disdain comes from. And it's part of, I mean, keep that in mind with the, the horrible Kong suit in this. This has got to be the worst King Kong's ever looked. Um, with the internet and things like that, if something like that were to happen now, you know, I don't think the Japanese would have went through with the movie. Um, this Making this movie was, you know, Tsuburaya's dream. You know, King Kong was the movie that made him decide to get into special effects 
It was the movie that made him, it, that, that determined his career trajectory. Uh, he absolutely worshipped Willis O'Brien. He wanted to make Godzilla in stop motion. Um, and I, I can't imagine that if any of, of the Japanese uh, filmmakers, you know, Honda, Tsuburaya, I mean, they love King Kong. I, I don't think they would have gone through with this if they had known what was really happening. Um, so, uh, having not watched this version in a while, I was not expecting to get to this scene <laughs> so quickly. Um, I kind of hate that I've been talking this much uninterrupted, but uh, I, I know you all know what we're looking at, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, I'm just going to get my, my piece out of the way um, as far as this scene goes. I, I think that it's important for me of all of us to, to talk about this because we are at the, uh, a scene that is, has not aged well. Um, here we have, uh, Japanese actors made up to, uh, in, in blackface, uh, wearing some very stereotypical tribal garb, um, with their spears and their big shields. And, uh, you know, it, it, this is something that, you know, people are reevaluating kind of old films for, you know, insensitive treatment of certain, certain races and ethnicities. And uh, I love this movie. I would never take anything from this movie. But I, I just think it's important to mention that I can still love this movie and admit that this is a problem. Um, and uh, it wasn't okay then. It's not okay now. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, let's cancel it or anything like that. You know, I, I just think it's important to have an honest dialogue about why this is wrong. <laughs> I mean, look at these extras. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> um, <is> so bad. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, yeah, they're, they're not gonna, it's not even so much, like, yeah, I understand a Japanese movie isn't going to be able to find, you know, actual people that could reflect a, a community like this. But it, still, there, this is not the best depiction. Um, Even the dub is not so great. You know, when you meet the chief and uh, and, and then you start even mixing, he's, like he says, chief, how? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, the the <laughs> the the cute little song that they play them is also a problem. It's uh, a song that uh, is actually about um, a native family on a, 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 a palm tree island. Um, and uh, I'll just read a sample of the uh, lyrics. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and again, it's playing into these old-timey stereotypes that came from a lot of Hollywood jungle movies, including King Kong. You know, um, but this song they're listening to now, uh, uh, this lyric I have a sample of here: "Dad is Roomba, Mom is Mambo, and the kids are Conga and Little Bongo." Um, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not good. Um, and yeah, I mean, th this this traces back to a long history, even before the original King Kong of, you know, these islanders and, you know, these Pacific islands, African islands, uh, just being incredibly primitive to the point of being stupid. And uh, I do find the little cigarette exchange to be 
funny, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's important that we, we point out that it's problematic and, you know, I think that there's this big struggle with people who love something where they, they don't want to admit that there's some kind of racial, uh, insensitivity or sexism or something, but you know, it's okay. It's okay to, to say that and it's okay to still love something like this. Um, so I'll get off my soapbox now. Oh my God! This American version is—it goes way too fast. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so uh, I've been blabbing uh, a lot and much more than I anticipated at the beginning of this. So let's backtrack a little bit because uh, I want John to talk about King Kong versus Frankenstein and what that would have been like. Um, and uh, I guess there's several iterations that it went through so um john i'm i'm opening the floor up to you yeah hey john so, yeah john real Tom. quick give me give me a time stamp real quick i accidentally hit my remote i just want to make oh, sure I'm- okay let me see let me see here i am at uh 2333 okay okay so while tom resyncs his <laughs> his dvd <laughs> um john tell us about king kong versus frankenstein you know what what would that have been like and what are some of the different, uh, I guess, drafts or iterations that it went through? Yeah, so the irony is I don't think on paper they ever called it King Kong versus Frankenstein um, because Obi, you know, he took it for granted that he could do what he wanted with King Kong, but in his mind he thought, oh, Frankenstein, Universal owns Frankenstein, so I, I'll use the concept of Frankenstein, but maybe not the name of the title. So Obi's like first little treatment story pitch was called King Kong versus the King Ginkgo, that was spelled G-I-N-G-K-O, which is kind of, what is it, an an, what's the word, an anagram for King Kong, where it's got all the same letters just mixed up? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I'm not, not real fond of that title, but that's what he called it at first. And I think where he got the, the impetus to do this film was back in 1953, around there, he and Marion C. Cooper almost did a King Kong color remake called The Eighth Wonder that didn't go through. And so I think that kind of put the idea in Obi's head that, well, you know, I, I could do another Kong film. And he also loved Frankenstein. Um, I don't know what year he attempted this, but at, at one point, Obi wanted to do uh, a stop-motion Frankenstein movie, apparently, just based on the Mary Shelley book, which, of course, didn't happen. But uh, his first uh, story pitch for King Kong versus the Ginkgo um, it would reveal to us that when King Kong fell from the Empire State Building, he didn't actually die. He fell into a coma, and Carl Denham, he felt guilty and smuggled him back to Skull Island. And then 30 years later, for some reason, we don't know why, Denham decides to return to Skull Island and recapture Kong. Now, something interesting about that, too, is it totally retcons Son of Kong, which, which Bird established that O'Brien had no love for, you know, because again, he didn't like the movie to begin with. And then he had those horrible memories, you know, of his, his kids dying and his ex-wife. So, again, he retcons Son of Kong where Skull Island actually sinks, you know, because in this, this version, Skull Island still exists. Um, but at the same time that Denim captures Kong, um, in the wilds of Africa, Dr. Frankenstein's grandson has stitched together a, a new gigantic uh, life form just composed of various dead bodies. And I've, I've read that in this first version, somehow he made a giant human out of a bunch of dead human bodies, and then later it would turn into um, animals like crocodiles and elephants and rhinoceroses kind of sewn together. 
But the concept art for this uh, Frankenstein monster, I'm not going to say that it's not interesting, but but when you hear that it was stitched together out of animal parts, it's not quite what you would expect. Um, it, it kind of looks like a hairless version of King Kong to me. Um, but anyways, though, uh, Dr. Frankenstein's grandson uh, brings this uh, giant animal and puts him on display in San Francisco. And, and so the problem, I probably should have said this to begin with, the problem with King Kong versus the Ginkgo and King Kong versus Prometheus, the other iteration, uh, we've never actually seen the treatments. We just hear what is allegedly in them. And one of the treatments was sold on eBay back in April of 2001, and we've never seen what's in it, don't know who has it. So it's kind of a, a mystery that we have to try and piece together. But so, yeah, so this first draft to another rumor about King Kong versus the Ginkgo was that Carl Denham gets the idea to stage a boxing match between the two monsters. And, he, and again, well, he doesn't learn, does he? No, and it's just funny because, you know, we talked about how Ryan, he was a boxer and had an interest in boxing, so I kind of believe that just because of his love for boxing. Um, and yet I've, I've never really seen descriptions of the monsters boxing. What, what I understand happens is that they do a double show of King Kong and this Frankenstein monster, and uh, what happens is the Frankenstein monster holds a tightrope between his hands, and the girl, a girl walks across the tightrope, she falls, and, and the Frankenstein monster actually saves her and catches her. But King Kong sees this, and he gets angry, and um, he, uh, he breaks free of his, his restraints, and he and the Ginkgo, they fight. Um, and they fight all the way out into San Francisco on the Golden Gate Bridge, and then the, the battle kind of ends with both of them just tumbling into the water. And then I think we're going to come up on the, the landslide scene here pretty soon. I don't know if Tom wants to to kind of take my spot and talk about it. Because doesn't the landslide happen here pretty soon? Yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, my uh, my notes are on a different mountain sequence, though. Oh, okay. There's a lot of mountains <laughs> in there. Uh, here yeah. we get the only joke that uh, I like in the American version, and that's uh, the introduction the of Yufujiki's corns. Um. Uh, but anyway, yeah, John, was there more with the 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 Frankenstein thing here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Uh, so uh, after O'Brien, he took this King Kong versus the Ginkgo to uh, Daniel O'Shea at RKO, and he's the one who informed him. You know, well, you don't actually have the rights to King Kong. We're gonna have to get your producer. He's gonna pay us for the rights, and he gets with Becca. So. Um, we've already established who Beck is, and Beck takes uh, O'Brien's story to George Worthington Yates, and he uh, changes the story into King Kong versus Prometheus, because they, they still didn't understand they could use the name Frankenstein if they wanted to. It, you know, Universal just had a trademark on the makeup. That was it. Um, so in this, this new version of the script, uh, basically the same, except for some reason they talk about Carl Denham. He's not in it anymore. And uh, they renamed Frankenstein's grandson, Kurt, and it's kind of a secret that he is Frankenstein's grandson that's not revealed towards the end of the, the film. And uh, he thinks that he's able to remote control the Frankenstein monster, except for the monster is just pretending to be under his control, and he actually uh, uh, turns the tables on Kurt Frankenstein in Candlestick Park in San Francisco. He goes on a rampage. And King Kong, who also just happens to be on display there, he breaks free, and, and same thing, where they fight. Um, and Darlene O'Brien, uh, Obi's wife, had an interesting quote about the end battle. 
that I'm going to go ahead and read. This is what she said. She said, the picture ended in San Francisco, and O'Brien was going to have King Kong riding a cable car, but he didn't get the illustration finished. He had this marvelous action in it. There were wonderful ideas for action. They were supposed to meet on this island and have this big battle. And I think that's interesting because I've never found in any of the synopsises about uh, a big battle on an island, so I don't really understand that. But And uh, now as to their, their fight on the Golden Gate Bridge where they climb it and fight each other, um, a few people have even wondered if the idea for Mechanicong and Kong to fight atop Tokyo Tower and King Kong Escapes might have somehow come over from this script... Um, and I, I often wonder if Shinichi Sekizawa, when this project came to Toho, did he even read anything from Ob- from uh, Worthington Yates or O'Brien scripts? And I have no idea. And to me, the only thing that carried over from this idea was when Mr. Taco gets the idea that why don't we have uh, Godzilla and Kong fight just take advantage of this situation not not towards the end of the movie on the diet building saying that's kind of the government comes up with that idea um, that the irony is okay the, the scene I was just spoke about is only in the Japanese version and the American version cut it out but it's a funny scene where Taco gets the idea that we need to have these two monsters fight and we need to make a publicity campaign around it and uh, again, ironically, that's probably the only thing that survived into King Kong versus Godzilla and didn't even make it to the American version. And another thing that might have survived, um, it, it's kind of speculated that the Frankenstein monster, the, the Ginkgo Prometheus, whatever you wanted to call him, that his power would be to do electric shocks through his fingers just because, you know, Frankenstein was brought to life through electricity. And some people think maybe he would have grabbed Kong and shocked him. And, and therefore, some, some people think, well, maybe Toho read this, and instead they gave that ability to Kong, which is kind of weird. Um, although I've talked about this to, to our good friend Justin Mullis, who, who's a you know, good expert on stuff like this. And Justin says that in Japan, apes are often associated with thunder, and he thinks maybe that's why um, Kong was, was given the thunder powers. I think, and, that's, I yeah. think that's likely, too. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's you got to keep in mind all these guys are dead. <laughs> there's no way to yeah. we can't tweet them and ask them. So, yeah. but I, I mean, they're both de- they're both probably equally valid theories. But uh, just knowing how a lot of that the kind of iconography and stuff from Japanese folklore makes its way into stuff like this, I I wouldn't yeah. doubt that that's actually the case. But yeah, and if if you're synced up with the movie, you'll see that. Eiji Tsuburaiba got just got to do some stop motion, which was really important to him that yep. he enjoyed. He loves stop and motion. I, That's I sure. am about to shut up, but since we're on the octopus, I'll, I'll just take this as an opportunity because I wanted to talk about it. Um, you know, one of my things is I try to go through the old scripts and find scenes that didn't make it into the movie or scenes that changed. And King Kong versus Godzilla, once uh, Sekizawa got a hold of it, I don't know of very many changes but the only change that i kind of got a glimmer of was this octopus scene um didn't get a really good translation but the impression i got was that king kong was either supposed to start fighting the octopus when it was in the water or their fight was supposed to extend into the water and in there and they just confined it all to land but that's just another kind of interesting tidbit while we're on the sequence but that's that's about all i have uh on King Kong versus Frankenstein, um, unless Bird remembers something else about it that I forgot. No, no I, I think you, I think you covered it. Um, 
Uh, and yet the it's fun, you know we mentioned thinking the the corns uh, 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 thing is funny, but uh, in the Japanese um, dialogue uh, when they're in the tent and they're like it's it's an octopus. Um, Yufujiki goes, you mean the boss is here? Uh, and that's because the Japanese uh, word for octopus is Takora and. Um, Mr. Taco, you know, the joke is that he misheard it and he thought he was talking about, uh, Mr. Taco. Um, and, uh, I guess, um, since we are getting on, oh God, okay. So, so let's just take a moment here to, to look at this Kong suit and, you know, we're all Godzilla fans. I mean, we're Godzilla (laughs) fans and Kong fans, but... I mean, you put your your put put yourself in the shoes of Willis O'Brien or someone like one of his proteges, like Ray Harryhausen, and knowing why this movie exists, what was done to O'Brien in this movie, basically almost literally killing him, and also looking at this Kong and how it just how bad it looks. Can any? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, can any of you blame any of anybody who looks at this movie? Anyone? Anyone looking at this movie through that lens for how they feel about Godzilla or the genre? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying that you know we agree with them on any level. But you, can you at least understand why you know <laughs> why they have the, the they feel the way they do? I mean, I grew up on this movie, so I, for a long time, never really thought that suit looked that bad, really. Because, like, I just, you know, just I've been looking at that thing since I was, like, four years old. Um, so, for me, it's just kind of was one of the way Kong's, Kong looked. But it's it's really bad. Yeah, those I mean, arm extensions, see, the, the hair, he looks see, like he has mange. The face you can, is you could see, terrible. You can see, like, where the headpiece fits yeah, onto the rest of the yeah. suit. Like... It's it's really really poor. This is this is some of the some of the worst work of of uh, of early Toho. Like in, especially in terms of the suits. I mean, and, you know, and, two I mean, years. Look at the look at the um... two years later they would be making <laughs> Gidra, which is like uh, a crowning achievement. Yeah, you know. And, and even before and, this, they did uh, Half Human, which has a way better looking kind of ape suit yeah you guys um, don't like alcoholic kong like <laughs> that's what it looks like the whole movie <laughs> um but yeah i mean can i uh, but i mean you guys understand why you know the the o'brien proteges and the stop motion community might look at this as anything but uh, uh, just an atrocity right yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. It would be okay. I think the, a very similar comparison might be how a lot of American Godzilla fans view the '98 Godzilla, and just in general, yeah. like just that design, the look. It's got a very different aesthetic. But yeah, hundred percent understand why. And, they uh, would yeah, that. and and you know, I mean, Darlene O'Brien, the person closest to Willis. I mean, she in a matter and 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 more. She more or less said this movie killed my husband. Um. <laughs> this music, the, the music in this part, while they're singing Kong to sleep, is um, is some of the only Ifukube 
uh, stuff that survives. Oh yeah, the, uh, yep. The Americanization, which is a shame and, because uh, I, I I really like that s- the score and 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 the Japanese version of this is the the first time you hear the the I, the Godzilla theme the dun 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 for Americans uh, that the first time we heard it would have been Godzilla vs Mothra, um, but. Yeah, that 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 sucks, and it's just replaced with this stock music that comes from Creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which is the music's fine, but it's a shame that it was removed. And it was removed because John Beck he he said that it was too ethnic sounding. It was too he wanted it to sound whiter, basically. <laughs> um, so they made the they made the villagers more black, and then they complained about the music not being wide enough. Is that? <laughs> hey, well, we're focused on I forget her name, but the the, the main dancing girl. I just want to I never knew this, but I just wanted to point out to people she's she played uh, Chica in, in Abominable Snowman. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and she was a girl in Half Human. Um, yeah. Uh, while we're kind of watching fun, this, fun fact one one quick fun fact about the the music. While while I you know since I mentioned it and mentioned Ifukube, if uh, if you happen to have Amazon Music and Amazon Prime and you you know search for Akira Ifukube and you want to make yourself a playlist of Fukube tracks, the only track that comes up under Akira Ifukube is this song on Amazon Music. That's it. <laughs> um so the the editing for this american cut which you know at this point in my life i'm more used to the japanese cut has got my flow all messed up so i'm definitely <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna backtrack a bit but while we're watching the uh drunk kong oh well i guess we're not watching it anymore <laughs> um <laughs> uh, okay while we're watching a, a, a boring newsroom scene um I'm going to have Matt pretend that we're still on Faroe Island and uh, just talk a little bit about the monsters and, um, you know, how some of the things that were, were done with the suits and, and stuff like that. Yep. By the so, way, we, 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 we didn't yeah. get a chance to point out how ridiculous it is that this scientist is on TV using a children's book to explain <laughs> um, Godzilla and Kong. And we're going to come back to this scene, too, because... It is undermining the entire point of this movie by insisting that these creatures have some kind of ancient rivalry or they're drawn to each other or something, um, when in fact it is the greed of humans that brings them together. But we'll get back to that later. Matt, uh, while these guys are boring us to death, um, go uh, and tell us about the monsters. <laughs> so Godzilla is, of course, played by Haruo Nakajima, who played you know the original Godzilla from 54 through Godzilla vs. Gigan in 72. Uh, but Godzilla was actually also played by Katsumi Tezuka during the iceberg scene. Uh, he would play Angiris. Um, he also was Godzilla for some shots in the original Godzilla 1954. And then, of course, uh, our, our, and Mata versus Godzilla as well as uh, Ghidra. Kong was played by um, Shoichi Hirose. And Hirose would actually play King Ghidorah. He would also play the Mega Nulon from Rodan. Um so unlike the Godzilla suit, the Kong suit actually did not have any fasteners that would allow him to get in and out of the suit really easily. And so they, the suit would actually have to be sewn and unsewn every time he got out of the suit, which I can imagine would just be exhausting. Uh, Nakajima and Hirose actually cho- uh, choreographed the fights together. 
and you can see very easily the the influence from pro wrestling they have a lot of and nakajima has like there's judo throws and everything in there it's a lot of fun um interesting fact that rko actually had three rules in their contract for the for the rights toho's kong had to have a distinct and different design which we just talked about and is very distinct and very different um he must also carry a woman and he must climb a building and we'll see that later in the film uh kaiser Murase <clears throat> actually confirmed that rko did not let them use the 1933 kong design which i did not know uh so that's pretty interesting that they wanted they consider using that and weren't able to and of course that fact combined with the uh budget cuts and Superaya's desire to not portray the monsters as being too scary. They can kind of be, blame, be, be blamed, all things considered, for the look of the Kong suit. This is a made. great, not to interrupt you, this is a great comedy bit in, in either version. The yeah, this part is a great <laughs> yes. part. Yes, the plunger. Pow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so building the Kong suit was a, a pretty considerable challenge. The first design was a bit too fat. I think we probably COVID weight. We can all relate to that right now. Uh, he had coarse hair and he had very long arms and legs. And you kind of see there's the, the arm extensions we talked about. Subaraya rejected that design. And, you know, he had, he went, he ultimately approved uh, the two suits that we see in the final version of the film. And then of course, you know, we talked about the octopus, which John had brought up. That's a, always a favorite of Subaraya. And he always wanted to make a stop motion about the giant octopus. And then there, so that was actually realized uh, using the combination of a prop stop motion and actually a real octopus. And of course the real octopus was cooked and eaten by the special effects staff after filming poor bastard. Um, <laughs> yes. So this would not get a, a humane society stamp <laughs> <No>. of approval. <laughs> uh, some people interpret Kong and Godzilla as a critique of U.S. and Japanese alliance, uh, but Honda has said there was no intent to do that. Yeah, and I, I believe I believe uh, I think Arakawa said, you know, that there was no interest in <laughs> having any kind of comment on international affairs using these icons from different countries. So uh, I, I believe William Honda. William I mean, the guy... William Sutsui. <laughs> well, I think that also comes I, yeah. through a lot better in the Japanese version versus the version we got. Like, yeah, yeah, the the Japanese version, you know, plays up the the the, the greed and the the salary man portion of it a lot better, and the and the satire and and this version kind of drops that. And I mean, I'm I'm yeah, I'm very prone to believe Honda that that there was no intention of that. I mean, when you look at the guy's other works and you look at you know. Uh, you know, outside of Godzilla, especially like you look at like his movies, like the Mysterians and Gorath and things like that, where it's all about, you know, essentially we're one earth. Right. And uh, he had such very humanist views and he was, he was so apolitical and um, he was very much like, Oh, politics, the politicians do nothing for us. Like, I, I'm very prone to believe that that was never his intention at all. Well, yeah, and also, I mean, Kong is the hero of the movie. <laughs> you know, so... Um, so, uh... Oh my gosh, are we seriously at this scene already? Okay, another one of my things uh, we're gonna put on the back burner... Um, because that was indeed Kenji Sahara going to find uh, his girlfriend, played by Mihama, 
Um, and uh, this scene has an interesting story behind it uh, that I'll let Tom uh, talk about. Yeah, so this, uh, this, this scene, um, not this scene. <laughs> oh, well, now, yeah, now. <laughs> oh, my God, this, this editing. <laughs> I, lo- I love hearing, like, Bird's brain just melt down. <laughs> yeah, this is so weird because we, that is a real ch- chop moment the in the f- editing there yeah where we're one second we're behind kenji sahara's head as he's flying down the road and the next we're doing the the plan to uh to bury godzilla what? In, uh, I, they really did take a chainsaw to this thing didn't they and some of it some of it kind of you know works or makes sense right like earlier on um, you know, we, we, we talked over it, right. Cause we had a whole bunch of other things we were trying to say, but like they take the, the Seahawk sequence, which is in the, the Japanese cut, it's broken up over, you know, multiple kind of check-ins with that portion of the story. There's like five or six different edits to that version or that, that portion of the story. This is in this one, it's all edited in, into one. Um, but, but anyways, so, yeah, we saw Kenji Sahara kind of flying through the mountain there. Um, and this kind of goes back to, uh, so, so Honda, there's some, there's some interesting stuff with all this mountain stuff in, in this movie. You know, and John mentioned mountains earlier and thought I was going to talk about a different scene. So, <laughs> um, Honda enjoyed hiking from his days in the military. Uh, and so he was really adept, an adept climber, an adept hiker. And it would cause his crew to lag behind him when they were filming on location. Uh, when they were filming in the mountain town of Yamikita, Yam Yamkakita, sorry, uh, about 13 miles from uh, the filming site of the the, the JSDF base at uh, Fuji Gotenba, Honda actually injured himself. He sprained his left arm, and uh, his assistant director had this to say: uh, "This is Koji Kajita." He says, "Quote." We borrowed a fire engine from Yamkakita Fire Department. We were moving to a new location, and we had to go so fast so that we could return the truck back on time. Honda was rushing while the rest of us took the longer, safer route through the valley to get from point A to point B. But Honda-san took the mountain road as a shortcut, the cliff road. The mountain was very dry, so there were dangerous spots with loose gravel. Along the way, he disappeared from our site. Oh my god, did he fall off the cliff? Everyone started looking for him. Sure enough, we found him injured. I understand why he needed to hurry, but it turned into a huge ordeal. We took him to the Numazu Hospital, and filming was called off for the day. The next day, I took over filming for him for just that one day. Uh, Kajita directed the scene where Kenji Sahara drives along the mountain to rescue Mihama from Godzilla. And uh, Sahara told him, or Sahara says that, that Honda told him to imagine he was actually going to save his girlfriend. So he sped along the side of the mountain uh, where a single wrong move could have thrown him off the cliff. And uh, Kajita, who actually directed that moment, you know, yelled at him for (laughs) endangering his life. (laughs) Imagine Honda, like, the whole point, like, he's trying to rush to get to one place to another, so he takes a different route, and then the other guys are walking, they, they see him fall off a cliff. <laughs> uh, that's a good story. Um, okay, 
So I, I mean, uh, yeah, the, so as you can tell by the way we're talking about this version, and I really would have wanted to do the Japanese version instead, but I know that it's not quite as accessible. So, like I said, unfortunately we're talking about this version, which I really haven't <clears throat> seen in a very long time. Um, and uh, I, this version guts most of... I mean, a, a whole lot of Honda's footage, including the characters who, in the Japanese version, are very charming. They they have, you know, a, a, some good character development. And uh, we had mentioned, uh, I think it was Tom that had mentioned, you know, the Salaryman uh, films. Uh, and for um, for people that don't know, um, th that was a kind of genre of comedy that was popular, especially in the late 50s and uh, early 60s. Um, uh, Toho's most profitable films were comedies. M about 30% of their output was comedies. Uh, the salaryman comedies were huge. Um, these were comedies that satirized the post-war work life in Japan. They would follow these overworked white-collar workers who would, you know, get into hijinks where they'd try to outsmart their boss or there was some kind of, you know, wacky misunderstanding. Um, and King Kong vs. Godzilla, and this is one of the tragedies of this American version, was a comedy. And it, it combined the salaryman comedy with the kaiju genre. And in my opinion, it does it really well. Um, and, you know, here we, we see um, our three uh, main comedic actors, uh, Tadeo Takashima, Yu Fujiki, and um, Ishiro Ar Arimasha, <coughs> Arishima, I'm sorry, is Mr. Taco. And, uh, I mean, these guys are great. Their characters are great. This American version doesn't really give us any context for who they are outside of their job descriptions. Um, you know, uh, we, we see later in the film, um, Takashima has the idea to use drums to replicate the, the, the Faroe Island song. In this version, we don't know why he comes up with that idea. In the Japanese version, it's established early on that he is a professional drummer, and um, he uh, it's one of the things that he does. You know, he helps this ad agency... Uh, or he helps Pacific Pharmaceuticals uh, make commercials for the, these ads, and um, you know he's playing the drums for the music in them. Um, and uh, this is also where we get into really kind of the the what this movie is actually about. And again, the the the, the subtext is completely removed from this version. Um, one of my favorite things about kaiju movies, uh, even when they're made for children, like this is definitely a more kid-friendly, more of a family film. But even those, I mean, in even an episode of Ultraman produced in the 60s or 70s could be subversive um, and have a lot of subtext and cultural density. Uh, and, you know, this is an example. I mean, in post-war Japan, uh, things like, you know, TV is getting huge, ads are huge. One of the things that you see pretty much everywhere, United States, Japan, whatever, around that time is, um, you know, uh, um, corporations uh, would, their, their input and sponsorship um, for television shows would be so huge that, you know, hosts of talk shows would promote a product, or, you know, here in the United States, you had stuff like the Colgate Hour, which is... You know, I mean, these shows that were really um, uh, heavily, heavily sponsored, 
and so this movie, there's not much mention in this version, but in the Japanese version especially, is about a pharmaceutical company and the television shows that they they uh, help produce, that they sponsor, their ratings are dropping. And it's because the, the shows, you know, they sponsor a lot of science shows that are boring, and, you know, the ratings are dropping, and what can we do, you know, how do we increase ratings? And their idea is, oh, we'll, we'll get King Kong to come and star in our commercials. And it's absurd. It's, it's silly, it's, it, but, it, it's, but the, that's the point. It's funny. And it's a funny way to poke fun at the corporate culture and the kind of capitalist, um, you know, way that, that uh, these, these shows were being produced. Um, uh, some quotes from Honda. He says, People were making a big deal out of ratings, but my view of TV shows w- was that they did not take the viewer very seriously, that they took the audience for granted. So I decided to show that through my movie. Another quote, he says, uh, The reason I showed the movie through the prism of a ratings war was to depict the reality of the times. When you think of King Kong and Godzilla ju- uh, just plain fighting, it's stupid. Um... I don't know if, uh, from what I understand, it, it doesn't look like anyone that made the new movie got that memo. Anyway, he says, uh, <laughs> he says, but how you stage it, the times in which it takes place, that's the work, that's the work, the, the thought process of the filmmaker. Back then, Sekizawa was working on pop song lyrics and TV shows, so he had a very clear insight into television. And then another good quote is, uh, uh, Honda saying, all a medicine company needs to do is make good medicine. But the company doesn't think that way. They think they can g- get ahead of their competitors if they have a monster advertising their product. And of course, we see the casualty and the destruction that this kind of greed uh, causes um, in, in this movie. You know, we, we've taken the, these monst- this monster that belonged on an island and we've put him into society. And it, it's really kind of a uh taking that theme from the original king kong and just turning it into this satire about how corporate culture will exploit you know a dangerous animal and and care more about their ratings than the destruction it causes and the dialogue is full of wrestling and baseball references. Um, the two drug companies are named after the Japanese uh, pro baseball's uh, Pacific and Central Leagues. Um, and uh, I'm going to have to really quickly, because of this goddamn edit, uh, <laughs> defer to Tom to talk a little bit about here we're seeing the monsters interact for the first time. And as the yeah. scene ends, um, I'm going to have Tom talk about it as if it is uh, beginning. Um, and uh, there, there, this is where we see a, a shift in how these monsters are portrayed and one that would um, cause some tensions um, even if they were unspoken uh, among the creators. So um, let's go yeah, ahead and, see, and, and talk know, about that. Yeah, we see things, you know, like Godzilla belly laughing and and Kong, you know. I mean, Kong's always been a little more humanoid, right? And a little more um, anthropomorphized, right? A little more intelligent and curious type of thing to him. But, you know, we really see it with Godzilla here. So, um yeah, there, you you notice that that Godzilla and Kong are both portrayed differently than their original creations uh, incarnation. This this includes, you know, more human like behaviors. Uh, you know, Godzilla, like we said, he's kind of belly laughing and patting his chest and stuff, and and uh, and mocking Kong. Kong kind of more scratching his head. Um, 
although that's kind of somewhat in character, but but still. Um, Honda felt that this was going too far, and it, it diminished the monsters, and he wanted them to act more like monsters and not like people. Um, the studio gave a lot of notes to, quote, make it as funny as possible, unquote. Uh, although Honda admits he wanted to make a more family-friendly film, um, this this sort of mandate to make it as funny as possible and 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 kind of force it into being like um, like a like a goofy like for kids thing rather than a, you know, a family thing, it made him uncomfortable. Subaraya though embraced these changes and he wanted to make the films even more kid friendly. And Honda said, "Quote." To me, what happened was not acceptable. Personally, I didn't want to do it, but the company demanded it. When you have to do it, then you have to do it. I did the best I could with it, and Mr. Subaraya did the best he could with it. It was about that time that Godzilla movies started to move toward a younger audience, but the fact that they decided to make Godzilla act like a human, it was not a good decision. This showed off the fact that he was a man in a suit. Bad idea. Subarai's assistant director, Setamasa Arakawa, agreed with Honda, stating he couldn't believe uh, they would show King Kong and Godzilla volleying boulders and performing silly stunts. You know, later on, you're going to see, like, Godzilla rise up on his tail and kick Kong and the judo throws that we mentioned. Um, Honda never talked about this disagreement with Subaraya, though, uh, in, in, in much public, most likely due to their, their mutual respect for one another. Um I, I think Honda's Honda's a little bit right, you know, a little bit um, to an extent. I think this movie does skew a little far, um, but I also think it still kind of strikes the balance struck uh, somewhat by like the um, Abbott and Costello meet meet the Wolfman kind of thing, right? Where um, everything around it is really funny, you know, like like. Bert talked about the, the salary man stuff and really the whole point of this movie is is it's it's a joke that like a, a company will stoop to bringing two giant monsters together to fight each other just for ratings which um i mean that that like that still seems relevant um <laughs> right yeah it really does <laughs> um and and it's funny because you know uh, like Bird mentioned, uh, we don't know. We we don't know for sure. We haven't seen it, but by all accounts, it seems like the the new movie didn't quite get the memo on on that part of it. But uh, you could have like almost basically remade this, right, and had it be like uh, two two media companies trying to make them fight for for TV ratings or something, right? But um, no, I, I think it's it's you know everything around it is funny, but then they treat the monsters themselves not like a joke you know um kind of like those abbott and costello movies where they're they're still a real threat um and there is some jokes kind of made at their expense but as a as a general rule you're still treating the actual monsters themselves and the threat they pose as a real threat yeah you know it really is that that quote uh and you know i'm Again, I I haven't seen the new movie, although I probably should have. Um, <laughs> uh, I haven't seen the new movie, but and and I don't know. I mean, uh, a lot of our our I guess uh, our notes are 
are we've talked about so you know we we can kind of slow down a little bit and but you know i i obviously i hope the movie's good i hope it's fun um but like i said this is something that i kind of miss in kaiju films is that they could be subversive that they could give you the monster action and deliver but then still have a, a an intelligence to them a subtext to them you know i know there was one quote from a, a review for the new godzilla versus kong that said if you're looking for any kind of um ironic intelligence this isn't a place to go and it's like okay i mean that's what the original movie had almost 60 years ago um but i i think i think yeah. this is also where we have studios and it's one example of studios maybe taking you know fandom criticism a little bit too much to heart um in that they like to overcorrect things and you know a lot of you go on a log on to any godzilla message board and you know you see people saying you know uh, you don't even need humans you just need monsters and and when you do that you really do suck any opportunity to do something like this out, um, and 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 as far as characters go, this I'm not edit looking. Is a, this this American edit is a pretty good example of that, right? Yeah, and <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. Well, here we get nothing but the monster stuff, but like we get scenes that are reshuffled. Like there's no this scene being where it is right now in the runtime makes no sense. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, you it's where you get a lot of that and. I mean, I, this is a, the the Japanese version of this movie is very much what I would consider a movie that delivers in both the character and story and in the monster stuff. I love the monsters in this movie, and I also love the characters. and And this is a thing I think when you when you bring up that criticism of any kaiju movie, you know, oh well, the monster stuff is good, but the story isn't good, the characters suck, and you're automatically met with that backlash of like, why would you watch a monster movie for characters? And it's like. When I say things like that, I don't mean I want some character study, you know, uh, or anything. I, but I, I want the characters to be fun to watch. I, I want them to have big personalities. I want them to, to have fun interactions. And, and, and the Japanese version of this movie has a ton of that, you know. They're, these aren't well, the deepest even, characters, but th- they're so much fun. And that's all I want. Well, and even little, little payoff things, right? Like, if you watch the Japanese version of this movie, it's... it's it's a little little thing, but it's something that, that has always stuck with me about the Japanese version that 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 gives it a, a different feel, even if you're not picking up on the the satire portion. Just from a storytelling and filmmaking perspective, is early in the movie, um, Sakurai, our 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 main character, um, is uh, he's he's playing the drums for whatever TV show is currently on the Pacific pharmaceutical company. Yeah. I, 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 I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. And then, and then it, it kind of just turns around and pays off, uh, again, you know, t- when he is playing the drums to put Kong to sleep, like it's just a little, it's a little thing that just kind of, pays off like it, it has that neat little payoff to it and you just you don't get that in in the american cut and and little things like that go a long way you know towards making a character and a moment and something memorable and when you yeah when you just focus on the monsters and listen i love skull island actually it's my favorite of the monsterverse movies but when you introduce the monster in the first you know minute and a half of the movie 
Um, and God, King of the Monsters did it in the first like eight seconds. You you and you fo- and you show that your focus is the monsters and not on you know crafting a world and crafting a story and crafting fun characters. You blow any chance for those kinds of things like out of the water. Yeah, and um, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I, and like I said, I just the characters. Don't, and like, I love, I love that Honda, you know, had that attitude of like, it, this is such a stupid idea. Like, you know, you guys are, <laughs> you guys are just doing this because Kong and Godzilla are like the two biggest monsters, and you know that if you put them together, it, it'll have like crossover appeal. Which, um, hello, Godzilla versus Kong twenty twenty one. Like, that's exactly what you're doing. Hold again, on, we, we got to get back to how messed up that line was, and it's a line oh, yeah, that's the only in the American Kong. version. Um, yeah, and uh, well, I'm 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 gonna bounce off John. Uh, in a minute and get into more of the nuts and bolts with this American version. But um, this is another thing that I kind of miss in in these monster movies is you often see a scene like this where we have Fumiko and Fujita, they're, they're getting separated in the middle of a monster attack. And the way a lot of these, especially the older films, frame the chaos of a kaiju attack is to kind of centralize on one character and what what their doing in 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 the the midst of all and, this and, and following them and following them through this this chaotic you know this thing where you know no nobody knows what's going on and kind of framing that from from you know one person or a couple people's perspective and and, and this is another good example of that where you see kong and fumiko um and uh and they're they're everyman characters right like yeah. i mean Fujita's job is like something, something in like manufacturing. Or yeah, something he makes like that, that string. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, what I, what I was saying about Honda too is I just I love that his attitude is like this is stupid and you're only doing it for ratings and so I'm gonna make the movie like basically call you out for that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> um, um, absolutely. That's great, yeah, that's a great subversive little little twist. Um, I do want to point out that if the scaling of this scene is to be cor- accurate, Fumiko is about the size of half of a train car. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I, I miss the Everyman characters too, and it seems like ever since what the eighties, nine, you know, nineties, you know, all our characters are usually military or scientists or government people, and. I do like, you know, I, I do miss when the main characters in a Godzilla movie could be people that work for a shitty advertising, like a, a pharmaceutical company, or just a guy that's obsessed with boats, or, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think it's time to buck the trend and kind of get it back to the everyman. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, yeah, but that's, that's another a, thing that... But, you know, like, you have the... You have the, the, the aspiring manga artist in yeah. Godzilla versus Gigon and yeah we get a little bit of that like Godzilla 2000 and I, I think even though he's a scientist I think the guy in Godzilla X Mechagodzilla is pretty pretty fun and uh, relatable um but yeah oh, he's, a, I, he's Dr. Sugar Daddy yeah awesome. yeah um <laughs> but yeah the, the the you know it also I I've always said that kaiju movies work best when they're at their most simple 
like I said, I don't need character studies. I just need people that are, you know, like I said, fun, big personalities. Um, and, you know, it, nowadays, characters just seem like they're just exposition machines. Like, like King of the Monsters, uh, everyone just shouts exposition. Well, and Kyle Chandler's character is just there to have every answer. Yeah, um, and and here we we get a great comedic moment with Kenji Sahara cut where he's yelling at Kong and everyone's looking at him like he's crazy. And uh, uh, John, I, I I want you to kind of you said you had some some things about that scene that that you wanted to to get to. Unfortunately, it's we don't get much of it in this cut, but uh, I want I want to hear what you had to say about it. Yeah, just for everybody who's actually watching the movie in sync with this, uh, Kenji Sahara, I find this hard to believe, wasn't scripted to be in this scene. And as they were shooting it, Honda was smart enough to to stop and say, you know, Fumiko's boyfriend should be in this scene. It would be much better. You know, it makes sense that he would be there and be concerned to be yelling at Kong. So that was kind of improvised by Honda, which I thought was interesting. And then um, it, it's the scene is just plays so much better in the Japanese version. It's a little longer, more intense. Um, really got shortchanged in this American version, but that was it basically. Yeah, that is one of those thoughts though, where like, you know, it does prove that the people making these movies did have more brains in their heads than let's just get the monsters to fight. Like, I mean, he had he had a scene and he was like, wait, it doesn't make sense that this character is not here. Like, let's get him out here and. Let's get him in the scene. Like, I mean, they cared about the storytelling. Since since you guys are on that, and since we're, like, fast coming up on the climax of the movie, do you want to talk about your your Americanization notes that well, you guys well, have? Well, yeah, this is as good a time as any, and um, I'm going I'm, to... I'm, I have a few a few things to, to mention, and I'm, I'm largely going to pivot to John, who, um, you know, I, I have his, the his book next to me in case I need to refer to it. But, um, so the added scenes with the newsroom guys, those were directed by Thomas Montgomery, who hasn't done much, uh, some, some old TV episodes, you know, handful of Gilligan's Island stuff. Um, the American version was edited by Peter Zinner, um, who was not proud of it and he shouldn't be, he should feel very bad about this. Um, but uh, he, he actually would go on to be an Oscar-winning editor. Um, he, he did The Deer Hunter. He did Godfather. He won an Oscar for Deer Hunter. He was nominated for The Godfather. He was also nominated for um, An Officer and a Gentleman. Uh, and this is kind of where he got his start. And um, I think he was pro- would probably be the first to say that this edit is an absolute mess. Um, but uh, he said that, you know, John Beck gave him kind of carte blanche to do whatever and you know it's kind of a a teeth cutting experience for him um the writers of the american version were were some struggling screenwriters um that that just john beck happened to to know um but yeah the much of kong's uh or um Kong versus God or God, God damn it! What's this called? <laughs> King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> much, much of much of Honda's uh, footage is cut, and we we have a lot of, you know, like I said, we have the scene with the scientists, uh, you know, saying that it, there's a territorial rivalry and and stuff like that. And again, it's just undercutting the message of of this movie. It's very evident that John Beck didn't understand it. Part of that I can understand because some of the comedy is very centric to Japanese pop culture at the time. But I think it, I I don't think it's so 
out there that it had to basically be destroyed. Um, we mentioned only in the American version, uh, Akihiko, uh, Akihiko Harada's character says, you know, the a- atomic bomb is on standby. We would have to evacuate the city. And that's not in the Japanese version. That's just a messed up addition. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, this it, this movie, this edit, it, it reshuffles scenes where they make no sense. Um, it creates lots of continuity and logic uh, problems. It cuts out all this character development. We mentioned uh, Ifukube's score, you know, oh, it's not Western enough. And it's like, you know, the later movies didn't have that problem. It's like, I, you know, I just don't think John Beck really... I think he, he, he got this going, you know, for, you know, the clout and all that stuff. But he didn't... It's obvious he didn't understand the, the, the product that was being made. Um, but yeah, John, I, I, I know you um, have some notes on the Americanization. I, I want to make sure you get uh, you know that stuff out of the way. Yeah, you hit all the really important stuff. I'm just going to throw in some more trivia that uh, that's kind of lesser known that I think people will find interesting. Um, you know, it's, so some of the irony is apparently Warner Brothers looked at this film as opposed to Universal because I I think it was in Steve Rifle's book. I hope I'm not wrong because I'd feel bad if I attributed wrong information to Steve, but I'm pretty sure I read it in Steve Rifle's book that Beck uh, did his first preview screening of this movie with two Warner Brothers executives, and that Beck had no like story synopsis at all given to him, so he was just completely lost um, during this first cut, uh, first time he saw it. And again, just I think it's funny that he had two Warner Brothers execs with him, since you know Warner's is doing the new Godzilla vs. Kong. Um... I see here that apparently Beck sold Universal the rights to this movie for $200,000, which I think is kind of funny since Toho paid more than that just to get the rights to Kong. Um, in terms of the, the running times, you know, Japanese version runs 97 minutes, American Cut runs 91 minutes, but the American Cut added in 14 minutes of new footage and in the process cut out about 20 minutes of Japanese footage, which is quite a bit. And um, let's see, the, the gross of the Japanese version was 350 million yen, and then the gross of the U.S. version was $2,700,000. Uh, and so that's just kind of some of the other trivia I had on it. And I, I think we've probably got more than enough left to talk about for the rest of the movie, so I'll shut up. Um, well, yeah, I, and I, I know that uh, apparently the, the, the two screenwriters... Um, uh, Paul Mason and Bruce Howard, uh, Brett Hominick even asked them, like, why did you take out the satirical edge and make it more of a straightforward monster movie? And uh, uh, Mason said that he thought they were being funny. You know, uh, he said that the line um, where Kong gets his chest burned and, and they say he's chicken, that, you know, that got a big laugh. But but that that's obviously showing the, the difference in, I guess, comedic approaches here uh, you know that it, it, the, the humor isn't quite as subtle or or anything like that um and yeah you know uh uh michael keith is uh eric carter um you know he's showing up in you know they they have that stock footage that i guess rko gave them some footage from the mysterians uh to use for for that and that that makes no sense um 
But yeah, just a lot of the changes were made because they felt like it was too Asian or, or too you know weird and out there. And I really don't think it is. I, I think John Beck is just an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and since we were talking about the American version, one of the shots you're going to see here pretty soon, which is actually a good shot of Tokyo from the air, that's unique to the U.S. version, and is not in the Japanese version. When that should be coming up here in a second. Interesting. Um, I wanted to say during during the you know while they're tying up Kong, some of the some of the uh, little animation soldier dudes that, that yeah, there's some stop motion guys like on it, standing on them and stuff. Yeah, I didn't yeah, notice that till it, I saw this on like Blu-ray either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. The other Tokyo, yeah, that's a good shot. Um. I was. We haven't really talked about it. We mentioned it kind of in passing, but this is like all the the hints of the atomic bomb, and they like they keep talking about it. They keep talking about it, and then all of a sudden, it kind of gets ruled ruled out. But obviously, such a weird inclusion to think about that. And it, it's obviously very American, but like atomic bombs solve all the monster problems in the B movies over here, and then of course you have this film, and they interject the atomic bomb, and it's when you think about it, it's just kind of harrowing, <laughs> like. We dropped the nuke on Japan. They put that in this movie, and it just—I don't know. It, it's it's upsetting. Yeah, this is the third one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit uh, about that. This is the third film for both Godzilla and Kong, um, and you know, people uh, debate, oh, who won? Uh, oh, God, you know. But we got to keep in mind that we we. we First of all, yes, Kong won, and you know I, I think I can read Toho's little thing about that. You know, before we we wrap this up, but uh, at the time that this movie was made, Godzilla had one movie that, uh, and Kong had one movie, and they both had very rushed sequels that nobody really seemed to dig all that much. Um, but we let's keep in mind who made this. Uh, the, these guys at Toho, I mean, Subaraya, Honda, I mean, these guys loved the original King Kong. Like I said, Willis O'Brien was Subaraya's hero, and so much so that when they made the original Godzilla, um, Subaraya loaned Nakajima his personal film prints. People did not have those back then. He loved this stuff so much that he had film prints of King Kong and Mighty Joe Young, that he loaned Nakajima to be like, look, you know, you're playing a monster. Like this is this is how these I want these scenes to be, even though we're we're using a guy in a suit. And you know, Subaraya used to uh, tell s- stories to his children. He would make up bedtime stories about King Kong. You know, like I said earlier, this is kind of a dream project. Oh my! Look at this! Look at this idiot! Look at him! I'm talking about Kong, by the way. He just <laughs> just such an unfortunate looking suit. This is where I mean, this movie is just jams. Uh, and I think I don't know. I kind of even before the lightning stuff. I mean, Kong has a good. Uh, he's got a he 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 he's got some good tactics here. And uh, this is still one of my favorite. Um, fights in a, a, a kaiju movie yeah um but yeah let's not underestimate kong uh some some facts about real gorillas um an average silverback can deadlift 
1,800 pounds. They can, their grip can crush the skull of a crocodile, and they are four to nine times stronger than the average human male. So, times that by however the hell big King Kong is, uh, you know, and, you know, he's got opposable thumbs, he can, he can craft weapons, he, he can think, I mean, he really is one of Godzilla's toughest foes, and I, I, I think back that... Back before Godzilla was turned into an actual nuclear weapon... <laughs> Yeah. That that would have been a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, Kong I mean the Kong is a uh, 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 sheer muscle mass and he's got that reach too. You know, Godzilla's got those little reptile arms. Kong has those long gorilla arms. It's a it's a really fun juxtaposition and that's why I, I do get so bothered, you know, when it, when fans talk about how can a, a monkey, you know, not like how can a, a monkey beat a dinosaur that shoots fire or whatever? And because it's like because tiny little monkeys can actually rip people's faces off. So uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do not want to mess with these guys. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, this 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 movie though was um, yeah. Did we mention this was like like this? I mean, you mentioned some of the box office numbers, but like. I mean, that's, you know, people are like, oh, a million yen or whatever. Like, like that doesn't trans. Like, this movie was a massive this movie, success. This movie was a crazy hit. Tickets. Yeah, pretty much yeah. every. I think, I think uh, you know, adjusted for inflation, I think this is still the Godzilla movie that did the, the most in theater. I mean, this was an event uh, here in Japan, well, it, it, everywhere. It sold the most tickets in Japan to this day. Like, it's... <laughs> There, there's a reason why Toho wanted to make multiple, like they wanted to bring Kong into the back into the Godzilla series multiple times. It's because it was so successful. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and like I said, I mean, the, the these guys. It's I, I would say this. Let's say uh, for some reason. Oh, there's some more of that stop motion. Uh, Toho has been trying to make a. Second Godzilla versus Kong for yeah oh we're 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 gonna get to that I'm I'm gonna give John the floor there we're gonna get to that there's like five minutes left movie's in this movie. almost over you better get to it then bro <laughs> <laughs> well I just want to point out that let's say you created your own monster and it had a a movie and then you had a chance to make that monster versus Godzilla like are you gonna have the audacity to make your creation lose against this character that you've loved since childhood like. That would have been the, that that would have been what they would have done here if they had Kong lose. You know, it's like right. It was a blessing to get to work with this character that they all loved so much, and you you are not going to make him the loser of your film, um, unless you were like Vince McMahon, for example, who you know um, finally brought in Sting from uh, never having been in WWE and he never won a single match while he was in WWE. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um uh, I guess I guess you know while Kong's getting his lightning power up here um uh and as Tom said this edit is really rushing us through the movie. It has like 5 minutes left. 
<laughs> we're we're probably going to go over a few minutes, which is which is fine. But I, I John, I'm going to pivot to you. To you, I mean, uh, Toho. It's it was always their kind of dream to bring Kong back in in reunite kong and godzilla and it it just didn't happen and and i i want you to kind of talk about some of those ideas i know there were a couple of uh heisei kong attempts at toho and you know i want you to get into some of these these things that toho were really never able to get off the ground and and i think it's usually because you know they just couldn't pay the licensing cost for kong um yeah so, i'll try to i'll try to do it like kind of speed it up uh so briefly like we, mentioned oh, well, here, we do have to point out this is probably the most iconic moment yeah. in, in this movie and one of the best scenes of in any movie ever which is Kong yeah. <laughs> jamming the tree yeah. down godzilla's throat and him using his breath to shoot it back anyway yeah tell us about some of these uh attempts that toho made to, to yeah. kind of get kong back well i'm irritated with toho because the rights you know i've seen multiple places they had the rights for five years and they really didn't take advantage of it but um instead of mothra versus godzilla the next movie was just going to be a straight-up rematch between these two called continuation king kong versus godzilla uh but don't really think we missed anything in it not being produced because it was just a rehash and it ends with both of them uh actually getting consumed in the lava of mount aso which I don't think Kong could survive, so I don't really like that ending. So, without you know, it's well, the gist of continuation. Well, an uh, interesting thing so about like, that though the the King Kong versus Godzilla continuation, and again showing where the intent was, Godzilla is presumed dead at the beginning of that, while Kong is alive and well. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. So again, you know, if if people if if. Godzilla was considered dead in the sequel to this that didn't get made, you know, and Kong is fine. I, I think that's showing something. That was didn't Kong have a relationship with a African boy or something in there? No, it was a Japanese infant. Uh, they never specified the sex, but it was there was a plane crash in Africa of a Japanese plane, and Kong like uh, adopts the little infant, and I I think that's interesting because you know, no spoiler, it's on the trailers. Kong is friends with a little girl. And Godzilla versus Kong, and I almost kind of wonder if that's where that came from. I, I like to think the screenwriter read my book, and that's where it came <laughs> from. But you know, but yeah, uh, but yeah, we're so close to the end. Yeah, Toho tried to remake this, and right after Godzilla versus Biollante, they couldn't do it. I think it would have been 1990. This the rights to Kong were too expensive. They tried again in 1994, again too expensive. Um, so Toho eventually gave up, and we don't even need to get into the the complicated legendary thing where they just both happen to get the rights to Godzilla and Kong, and that's how how it's finally happening again after all yeah. these years. Well, but, did did we talk about? Like, I we can. I mean, like I said, we're probably going to go over by a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I, I'm okay with that. But we actually we do know more details about they were they were going to do the Godzilla versus Mechanic Kong film when they were like oh we can't use king kong we'll see if we can use mechanic kong and i don't know if there's a hang-up with rankin bass with that because it originated in in the animated series or or what but there was definitely likeness problems that prevented them from using mechanic kong but but what do we yeah. know about what that story was like yeah so that gosh there's a lot to that one um it was the idea was that uh, they were going to inject uh, little micro people into Godzilla, like in Fantastic Voyage, and they would like swim around Godzilla's blood in a submarine, and then Mechanicong would like fight him on the outside. And some version of the versions of that script were actually set in America near Las Vegas, Nevada, 
Um, some were set in Japan, and I think one ended with Godzilla falling into the San Andreas Fault in, in the case of the one set in America. Um, yeah, a lot of wild stuff. And, <laughs> and again, yeah. Yeah, Rankin-Bass created Mechanicong, not, you know, RKO, but just because he's in Kong's likeness, they kind of felt like RKO owned him. I, I don't think anybody really owns Mechanicong. He's probably more nebulous than Kong himself. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I wouldn't doubt, though, that... I mean, because the Rankin-Bass properties are still held by somebody, and, I, and you yeah. know, that, that is someone that, you know... The, they they did co-produce King Kong Escapes with Toho, so you know I I, I wouldn't doubt that there's problems there. Um, we we I mean I, for whatever reason, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland published a piece saying that there were two endings filmed: one for America where Kong wins, one where Godzilla wins for Japan. And uh, for some reason, I still see people saying that. Like on Facebook and stuff, you would think that rumor time. could God. be would be gone by now, but it is not true. Um, the movie just ended, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is not true. And um, not only that, if if you ask me, the uh, the Japanese cut, I think, makes it less ambiguous who won. Right, like well, the, even um, that even I don't agree. isn't there a part where the characters even say like, "Do you think Godzilla's dead or something?" Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the in the yep. American in the in the American version, they say Kong is swimming away, no sign of Godzilla, and you're like, uh, okay, like I mean, as a, when I was a kid, I just always grew up thinking like, oh, it's, it's a draw, right? Because Godzilla just swims away. Um, but then it, the you know a I mean it was the intention that Godzilla loses the fight which I mean who cares like my my identity is not caught up in the outcome of a fictional movie fight um, but like beyond beyond that like the Japanese version yeah they say Godzilla no sign of Godzilla do you think he's dead and someone's like I hope so like and and you know we are not seeing him like it it makes it pretty less ambiguous right it yeah. makes it, it makes it kind of hammers home the point more of kong one um and like i said i mean this this movie being made by kong fans and also like what john was saying like kong uh is alive and well and godzilla is assumed dead in the the uh unmade sequel to this i mean there's that and then also in uh and john i'm gonna have you correct me if i'm wrong but in the original drafts of Godzilla vs. The Thing, instead of Mothra's egg that is put on display, it's Godzilla's body. And they they find a, he's knocked out in, in the ocean, and they think he's dead because of the, the fight with Kong, right? Yeah, that is correct. So, so we can see how continuation King Kong vs. Godzilla did actually evolve into Mothra vs. Godzilla. Yeah. And... Um, and even in that, I mean, he he his body is washed up in that typhoon, and he, it's buried under under all the the dirt, and that's where he comes up. Like he he's in every version of a sequel to this, including the one we got. Like he's unconscious at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of though, yeah, one thing I did want to point out that uh, I wasn't able to is like when Kong throws Godzilla, that's actually Nakajima in the suit. That is not an empty suit. Um, 
Anyway, I do have uh, Toho's... Um, yeah, he almost died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do have Toho's <laughs> press release. Uh, well, I guess this is part of their international sales catalog. Um, uh, at the time this was made, and it's, it's part of their, their breakdown for King Kong versus Godzilla, the last paragraph is, A spectacular duel is arranged on the summit of Mount Fuji, and Co- King Kong is victorious. That is coming from Toho. Um, you know, later on, I know supposedly Tanaka and, and you know, the to- guys at Toho started to consider it a draw, but, you know, that was once Godzilla became a really profitable franchise. You know, at the time, this is not what that was. Um, we should also mention that the Japanese version, until very recently, was in pretty rough shape. Um, you see it on the Criterion Blu-ray, too. You know, there's all these scenes that look, mostly human scenes, that look like they uh, are, like, smeared in Vaseline or something. And that's because when they did the Champion Festival version of King Kong vs. Godzilla, which was a shortened version that would play at these kiddie film festivals in the summer, and that's where all the 70s Godzilla movies were shown. But they'd re-release them. Honda actually re-edited all them himself. But for King Kong vs. Godzilla, it was actually the original negative that they cut up to make that shortened version. So a bunch of scenes were presumed lost. Um, And then shortly after this movie came out on Blu-ray in Japan, they found some, some good elements for it. And Toho did a 4K remaster. It looks amazing that they, uh, uh, sold for TV broadcast, and because they're Toho, um, not only have they not released that 4K transfer on home media there, but they also wouldn't let Criterion use it for their American box set because fear of reverse importation, blah, 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 um, and, uh, you know, it took a couple years for a, a rip of that broadcast to, to come out online, um, uh, in on American, you know, torrent sites, and so finally, it's out there floating around, and you know, there's people have put the fan subs onto it, but um, I, who knows if they're going to put that out uh, ever? You know, it's just another example of Toho being just oh, well. the worst. You just said Toho. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, that's King Kong versus Godzilla. I, I I don't think any of us were quite prepared by uh, for the the crazy speed at which that <laughs> American version goes. Uh, but you know, uh, yeah, I think we packed a lot yeah. of information into there. And you know, I mean, we talk about sort of the impact this movie had on the the franchise. I mean, you know, like I mentioned, I mean with. Toho pushing for it to be very funny and very, very kid-friendly. I mean, we saw that trend more or less just keep going, right? And we see I mean, Honda kind of get it, a little fed up with it, with Monster Zero. It, yeah, I was just, just going to say, it, it rears it, it reels itself back in a little bit um, with Mothra versus Godzilla, um, especially in the way the monsters are portrayed. But then it, it continues... In uh, in in Ghidra, where you know Honda uh, saw the the scenes of the the, mo- the monsters talking to each other and like wanted to jump into a a, a damn ocean, um, <laughs> and then Godzilla doing the she dance in Monster Zero was like the last straw for him, and that was it. He was he was done unless 
for him, he was done. And then they said, oh, no, can you just come back and do just this one? Because it'll be the last one. And then, like, you know, they were like, can you just come back and do this <laughs> one? <laughs> this will be the last one for real. <laughs> um so, so I mean, that's sort of one of the lasting impacts of this movie, for better or for worse. However, you want to perceive and interpret it is it really has has ultimately changed the way the monsters are portrayed. I mean, we see that even even carrying through into the monsterverse, right? Like um, Godzilla is very very humanized in those movies. Um, in the in the two movies we have so far, he. Uh, you know, has his little bro moment with with Ford in the 2014 movie, um, and he has a couple moments with Kyle Chandler's character, and uh, and uh, he's got like a couple other moments where he exhibits a lot of personality. I mean that that all that stuff that a lot of people say they really like, um, we for for any number of reasons, it it stems back to this. Um, so yeah, for better or for worse, that's it's, this movie has has guided a lot of uh, what has become this franchise since since then, since 1962. Yeah, and and like I said, I mean the the screenplay and the structure really does did just from this point onward, it defines not just Godzilla but the genre. You know the the way the story unfolds. I mean, like I said, Kaneko references this movie as you know the template for. Gamera Guardian of the Universe because he just thought the structure it was just structured so perfectly as a kaiju movie like it it really set the precedent um but yeah like I said it was it was a success um but uh you know who didn't make any money on it Willis O'Brien Marion C. Cooper um and uh it, it's really unfortunate in a way that King Kong from this point forward is uh, is is like existentially tied to Godzilla in some way or another because this movie was so big. Um, and it's like, yeah, this is, is, is really when you peel back everything to the beginning, it, 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 it's a very sad story, really. I mean, um, and so, you know, I, I don't know that Willis O'Brien or any of his, uh, family members (laughs) or that are still alive or, you know, uh, Darlene O'Brien, his wife. Uh, by the way, that's not the wife that killed their kids. I, I want to make that. I don't know if I made that clear. Darlene was his second wife, but you did not. Um, you know, <laughs> you she died a long time ago. And uh, well, I think I said his first wife's name was Hazel. So anyway, yeah, I was, was just gonna say. I think I think that that you mentioned the first yeah, wife's name. But so. uh, no, I mean it is really just sad. So any any I mean uh, anyone. Any surviving relatives of Willis O'Brien? Do you guys think they're really excited for <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong? I think they're super excited for uh, Kong with the battle axe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, the American version. I mean, I have nostalgia for it, but I, I never go back to it. And, and but I watched it a ton as a kid, but. You know, the Japanese version is one of my favorites. I love it, and um, uh, it's too bad that its existence made a lot of good people very miserable. So, I guess I don't know. Is that a good? Is that a good way to end this? <laughs> <laughs> my my kid, you know, my kids really like the American, you know, 
this movie. Well, um, they, so, they, they will in, in, until they get older, you know? I mean, well, yeah, and that's the, I mean, you know, I mean, again, that's the, the, the Toho mandate, right? You know, and that's for better or for worse, it, it really did, it worked out how they wanted to. I mean, the target audience of, of children. Um, or the, the audience Toho wanted. I mean, my kids really like this movie, and my kids will. I mean, uh, yes, I did sit on the remote once, but also while we were watching this, my movie skipped about like five or six minutes worth of time because I think there's a fingerprint on the disc. Um, my kids will, gr- and and the Toho or not the Toho, the the Xbox One Blu-ray player sucks ass. Um, <laughs> So my kids will grab this disc though and, and watch it. So it, you know, I mean, it, it, if uh, if you're looking for a Godzilla movie to show your young children, I mean, I think this one really really hits a lot of the the right marks. Um, it's not too scary or too intense or anything like that. That's yeah. maybe a better place than to leave off than than how it murdered a man. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, well, this was a lot of fun. I like doing commentaries. I apologize that we weren't, I guess, more. We didn't familiarize our refamiliarize ourselves with this version a little more. But uh, you know, thank everyone for listening, and and Tom and John, thank you guys. And uh, I know that you know at our most cynical, we might not quite expect the best out of Godzilla versus Kong for reasons I'm sure we don't need to repeat right now but i think we all do have some we are looking forward to it uh still to some degree and i we hope for the best for it you know um so that'll be you know our our tease our cliffhanger for you know godzilla versus (laughs) kong when whenever we record that um so uh so yeah bye good night everybody hi Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.